Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. For the better part of the last decade, science fiction finally evolved from a niche genre into a mainstream staple. And while many people are familiar with the so-called fathers and grandfathers of genre, the women who have been instrumental in creating and shaping the nerdverse have largely gone unrecognized. Until today. I'm Courtney Enlow, and this is Sci-Fi Wire Fangirl's Forgotten Women of Genre, a podcast where we tell the stories of the women who helped some of the most famous fantasy worlds become a reality. For nature is so full of variety that our weak senses cannot perceive all the various sorts of her creatures. Neither is there any one object perceptible by all our senses no more than several objects are by one sense. Margaret Cavendish, The Blazing World. It's 2019 and we still have to contend with the dull and archaic stereotype that the science fiction genre is a man's realm. Even as amazing female writers dominate the Hugo Awards, amass bestsellers, and redefine sci-fi for a whole new age, their mere presence in this literary realm is met with backlash by those who insist that presence is some SJW takeover gone wrong. The easiest way to smack down such nonsense is to remind people that the first science fiction novel ever was written by a woman. Usually when we make that case, we're referring to Mary Shelley and her masterpiece Frankenstein. But more than 150 years earlier, there was another woman blazing the trail for this brave new genre. One multi-talented woman, a figure ahead of her time, helped to create the literary genre we adore so much to this day. She was a poet, a philosopher, a scientist, a philanthropist, a socialite, and a pioneering sci-fi author. Her place in history has been oft maligned or dismissed, but we are here to give her her much-deserved due. Fellow fangirls, meet the Duchess of Newcastle-upon-Tyne, Margaret Lucas Cavendish. Margaret Lucas was born in 1623, the youngest of eight children. Her father, Thomas Lucas, had famously killed a man in a duel, which resulted in his exile before he was pardoned by the king. While she never received a formal education, she found great pleasure in writing. Since public female intellectuals were frowned upon at this time, Margaret kept her interests mostly to herself. She would find her first taste of freedom when she became a lady-in-waiting to Queen Henrietta Maria, the wife of King Charles I. She would then marry William Cavendish, Marquis of Newcastle, and later Duke. By their own accounts, the marriage was a loving and respectful one. Margaret credits William with being a tutor of sorts for her writing, and William was vocal in defending his wife against public mockery and claims he was the real author of her work. Cavendish started publishing collections of her poems in the 1650s, 
her favorite themes being nature, philosophy, love, and celebrity. In the preface to her first collection, titled Poems and Fancies, she acknowledged that she often found it difficult to create rhymes that would allow her to tackle certain themes and that her writing wasn't the strongest of the era. But she made no apologies for her dedication to subverting gender roles. She pointed out frequently how writing was seen as a male occupation, but that she found great satisfaction pursuing it than she did any other hobby deemed suitable for women. She was also completely open about her desire to be famous and described her search for celebrity and literary glory as a means of leading the way for other women to do so. In a move that was controversial for the time, Cavendish published her memoirs, titled A True Relation of My Birth, Breeding, and Life, in 1656 when she was only 33. As written in Paper Bodies, a Margaret Cavendish reader, she was probably unique for her time in the extent to which she herself transcended the rigid categories of gender and class that defined most people's lives. The paradox begins to recede when we realize that her works illuminate the most significant preoccupations of her society, precisely because she played with, probed, ridiculed, or rejected the dominant assumptions that structured early modern beliefs and behavior. In the process of writing, Margaret Cavendish fashioned a personal identity, indeed an entire universe, radically different from the world in which she lived. Men from her time took umbrage with Cavendish embracing the topics and academic interests that were supposedly not for women's tastes. This led to a lot of insults, including the nickname Mad Madge. Diarist Samuel Pepys infamously described her as a mad, conceited, ridiculous woman after reading one of her biographies. The Royal Society, a group established to foster scientific thinking and education, invited her to speak there, making her the first woman to be given such an honor, but she was still looked down upon by their members. The writer and diarist John Evelyn called her a mighty pretender to learning, poetry, and philosophy. For many in contemporary Restoration-era high society, the Cavendishes were a source of much entertainment. Margaret, in particular, liked to reinvent herself through extravagant fashion. She dressed with such creative abandon, uninterested in following the trends of the day, that men spent more time talking about her clothes than her work, something women these days are all too familiar with. She appears in Pepys' diaries and is described, as Bridget G. McCarthy put it, with all the gusto of a child describing a circus. All the town talk nowadays of her extravagances, with her velvet cap, her hair about her ears, many black patches about her mouth, naked-necked, without anything about it. One famous and possibly apocryphal anecdote involving the king recounts a visit by the Count of Gramont, who thought he saw, quote, the devil of a phantom in masquerade. She must have at least 60 ells of gauze and silver tissue about her, not to mention a sort of pyramid upon her head adorned with a hundred thousand baubles. I bet, said the king, that is the Duchess of Newcastle. The strongest example of what made her so inimitably fascinating can be found not in other people's talk of her, but in her most famous work, the novel that helped to birth science fiction as we know it. Published in 1666, The Blazing World, also known as The Description of a New World, called The Blazing World, was originally published as a companion piece to a book Cavendish wrote on experimental philosophy. 
Essentially, she wrote her own fictional tie-in, but it was also pretty radical of her to write a serious scientific work and offer as a companion piece a more fantastical version of those same ideas. The Blazing World isn't just sci-fi. It's a utopian fantasy and satire and fictional biography and natural history and morality play and bonkers comedy. It defies easy categorization, much like Cavendish herself. The story follows a woman who is kidnapped by a would-be suitor and finds herself in an entirely new world, one where animals talk and are as intelligent as human beings. There are submarines towed by fishmen and attacks mounted by birdmen dropping rocks on their enemies. Each animal serves a specific purpose in this world. The birdmen are great orators, the spidermen are mathematicians, ape men are chemists, and the worm and flymen natural philosophers. In this blazing world, man and animal are united as one under a single peaceful religion and ruled over by a single individual. The lady soon becomes their new empress and begins a series of studies on intellectual, scientific, and philosophical thoughts with these animals. She soon finds out that war has broken out in her own land and decides to fight for England with her army of the new world so that she can rule over the world for the good of her home country. It's tough to break down the blazing world in strictly plot-based terms because so much of the book is a philosophical exercise rooted so specifically in the ideas of the Restoration period. It's clear that Cavendish's interests lie more in the philosophical quandaries posed by a theoretical world wherein animals are as intelligent as humans than in the creative joy of giant worm men, which are in the book. A lot of the book makes more sense when you understand the context and Cavendish's own life. For instance, her seeming autocratic stance in the blazing world is more fitting when you remember that she and her husband were staunch royalists during a time when the British monarchy dissolved and Oliver Cromwell was the head of state. Her ethical studies of animals as equal to human fits with her stance as one of the era's first true animal rights activists. The readiness and enthusiasm with which this new world accepts the authority of women feels fitting given how Cavendish spent most of her life being ridiculed by men below her standing. Of course, for a book this daring and ahead of its time, a lot of its content is decidedly of its time. The idea of creating a utopian world wherein the structures of authority and democracy give way to an absolute monarchy feels very dated in 2019. And that doesn't even take into account the impossible-to-ignore colonial implications of Cavendish turning up in an entirely new world and almost immediately rising to the top of power. Cavendish also justifies this political choice through faith, a common tool of colonialism and white supremacy, writing, it was natural for one body to have one head, so it was also natural for a political body to have but one governor. Besides, said they, a monarchy is a divine form of government and agrees with most of our religion. Modern critics and scholars have placed further emphasis on how Cavendish inserted herself into this narrative. The protagonist, after becoming empress, wants to write down her scholarly ideas, but needs some help. So she asks the spirits of her new world to bring her a scribe. They bring her a woman named Margaret Cavendish. She is, of course, immensely charming and intelligent and someone to be adored. So on top of pioneering the science fiction genre, Margaret Cavendish may have also helped to birth the Mary Sue. In an epilogue to her book, she makes no apologies for her self-confidence and willingness to elevate herself 
to such lofty heights. For her, being a trailblazer meant she was perfectly worthy of such things. And in creating her own philosophical world, totally unique from the fiction of the time, she was a leader. As she wrote, For I am not covetous, but as ambitious as ever any of my sex was, is, or can be. Which make, that though I cannot be Henry V or Charles II, yet I endeavor to be Margaret I. I have made a world of my own, for which nobody I hope will blame me, since it is in everyone's power to do the like. Cavendish was a prolific writer in her time. She wrote various plays, published collections of her philosophical letters and speeches, and wrote extensively on natural philosophy. While she was well-read by the public during her time, after her death in 1673, she mostly fell into obscurity. As a literary figure, she was most heavily defined by what other people, usually men, had written about her, particularly Samuel Pepys. The image of Mad Madge stuck in people's minds more clearly than her fiction, philosophies, or public speaking. It wasn't until the early 20th century when author Virginia Woolf helped to rediscover her that she was returned to the historical narrative of restoration literature and science fiction. While remaining one of her biggest defenders, even Woolf had to get in a few digs at Cavendish's writing. Woolf wrote in The Common Reader from 1925 that Cavendish's plays were intolerable and her verses mainly dull, but praised her for her authentic fire. It may be Wolf who described Cavendish the most succinctly. One cannot help following the lure of her erratic and lovable personality as it meanders and twinkles through page after page. There is something noble and quixotic and high-spirited as well as crack-brained and bird-witted about her. Her simplicity is so open, her intelligence so active, her sympathy with fairies and animals so true and tender. She has the freakishness of an elf the irresponsibility of some non-human creature, its heartlessness and its charm. Modern feminist scholars have found much to celebrate in Cavendish's work, and her reemergence has also influenced more prominent figures in sci-fi. In Alan Moore's The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, the blazing world is the realm from which the traveler Christian originated. China Mievel's On London includes a book titled A London Guide for the Blazing World. The story of Margaret Cavendish represents many things. It's a reminder of how women are historically erased from narratives of prestige and historical worth, but it's also an insight into how easy it is to deny said women their right to be pioneers. It was all too easy for history and the leading male voices of the time to dismiss Margaret Cavendish as a novelty, one unworthy of serious consideration, rather to embrace the myriad ideas and philosophies she created. For every woman who's ever had their intellect ignored in favor of having their appearance picked apart, Margaret Cavendish's struggle feels all too real. The Blazing World is admittedly a tough book to read. It's weighed down by philosophies and contemporary concerns that the modern reader may struggle to comprehend, and the sheer messiness of her ideas may prove too convoluted for some. But her work cleared a path for an entire generation to follow in her footsteps, and she should not be forgotten. Forgotten Women of Genre is a production of Sci-Fi Wire Fangirls. Today's episode was written by Kaylee Donaldson, read by Courtney Enlow, and produced by Sheer Martinetti. You can find the script of this episode and so much more at scififangirls.com. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at scififangirls.
One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader.